Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Late Monet. My first guest, George Shackelford, is the curator of Monet the Late Years at the De Young Museum in San Francisco. The exhibition includes canvases Monet made at the end of the 19th century and in the mid-19-aughts, but primarily considers the paintings Monet made between 1913 and his death in 1926. Shackelford is the deputy director of the Kimball Art Museum, to which the exhibition travels from San Francisco. Monet remains on view at the De Young through May 7th. The Kimball published the catalog, which Amazon offers for $40. On the second segment, Phillips Collection curator Vesla Sertanovich on Zilia Sanchez. But first, George Shackelford, after a break. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Trevor Paglin, Sights Unseen, at its downtown location, now through June 2nd. Featuring more than 100 works from the MacArthur Genius Award-winning artist, this mid-career survey traveling from the Smithsonian American Art Museum is the first exhibition to present Paglin's early photographic series alongside his recent sculptural objects and new work with AI. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is the only venue for the exhibition Vincent Van Gogh, His Life and Art. Portraits, landscapes, and still lifes drawn primarily from the collections of the Van Gogh Museum in Amsterdam and the Kroller-Muller Museum in Otterlo chronicle Van Gogh's evolution as an artist, opening March 10th. Visit mfah.org Van Gogh for more. We're back. George Shackelford, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. So nice to be here. Thanks. Monet's late period. How did you choose to define it, and why did you choose the definition you chose? Let me start uh, at the beginning to say that the Kimball Art Museum, where I work and from which the exhibition was organized, possesses two paintings by Monet. One painted when he was 24, and the other painted when he was 78. So, as you know from our previous conversation, we did Monet the early years a couple of years ago. And so it was now time to do Monet the late years. And for me, what I wanted to think about was the really the last decade or so of Monet's life. In 1914, he experiences a real, I don't know, a real reawakening of, of interest in painting and a new vigor. And he then changes his art pretty much completely until the end of his days in 1926. So for me, that was what late Monet meant. But in terms of the exhibition, I really didn't want to start in 1914 because if you started with the most revolutionary work, instead of showing something before it, then the revolution wouldn't seem so powerful. So the first part of this exhibition, Monet, the Late Years, is in a way to kind of lull the visitor into the sensation that everything is as it it would be expected. So beautiful water lilies, beautiful Japanese bridge, beautiful view of the Seine, wonderful paintings of the house and the pond painted in 1913. And then they turn the corner and whammo. The paintings are four times as big and the brushstrokes four times as large. And and it's a real visual impact at that point. So that's why the late years defined in that kind of tight way. Well, let's start with 1897 then, because you mentioned providing some grounding for visitors as as they come into the show. 
what were those late 19th century paintings you chose and how is their treatment of water and its opacity different from what we're going to see kind of at the outset of World War One? Well, the paintings from 1897 are specifically the group that are called gener- generically Mornings on the Seine. They were sometimes called Matinee, Matinee sur la Seine, or the Bras de Seine, Matinee, or some kind of version of Morning, Seine, River notation. And it's a whole group that deals with a pretty much complete up-down reflection where what is in the background and the trees that are in the near ground are reflected pretty much like a Rorschach block along a horizon line that generally is close to the center of the canvas. So what you get is the trees and the sky that are above the horizon then being doubled below and forming an inverted pattern of light and dark so that the light, for instance, which would generally be seen as being above the tree is now sort of floating in the water below the tree. And you get a very specifically unsettling sense of maybe vertigo or what's up, what's down. So picking paintings like that, which in a way predict, or let's put it this way, they don't really predict the water lily paintings of 1903 to 5, but it's a, it's a step in a research that would eventually allow Monet to move the horizon line higher and higher and higher and therefore the the percentage of sky and trees become seen not in reflection but in fact straight on becomes smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually the horizon line goes over the top of the canvas and all you're looking at is the reflection so in a couple of paintings from 97 and 99 we show him gearing up to that and then a group of paintings painted between 1904 and 1907, we see him really exploiting that. And then we see what comes after that. But there's also a painting from 1897 in the exhibition that has traditionally been dated to the 19-teens. And I think the reason why it was dated so much later has to do with the fact that it is so big. And I'm convinced, and I think everybody who sees the show now is in agreement, that it must have been painted in 1897. And it's the very first group of complete reflection water lily studies that were kind of on their way to becoming the big decorations that he recommenced after 1914, and and particularly around 1918, 19, and so forth. Yeah, as I as I looked through the catalog, I thought to myself that in especially kind of the mornings on the Seine paintings that Monet is kind of getting, I don't know, comfortable is not the word, but maybe comfortable with reflection, which is something that we think of, you know, that Americans are familiar with through American art. I mean, Emerson's Nature in 1836 is substantially about reflection, and American painters seize on that metaphor and, and milk it for all it's worth for the next six decades. But in French painting of, you know, the mid to late 19th century, reflection is not a thing like that. <laughs> it's pretty good in Corot, who, yeah. of course, was the, the sort of model for, for much of the early Monet. 
And in fact, in in Monet's work, you know how important reflection is, even in the very early years. But it's the notion of taking it to that to that state where, when all you're looking at is reflection, you yeah, you've made it into a kind of a of a kind of existential question. You know, where am I? What am I looking at? You know, has my world turned upside down? All of those kinds of discombobulating emotions come into play. Yeah, and in these four paintings from from the 1900s, 04 to 07, the water and the lilies don't just fill the frame, as you mentioned. There is this blurring between what is reflection and what is flora, if you will. So as you as you, as you pointed out, he's tilting the pond up toward the picture plane, and in this period. Matisse and the Fauves are using color to flatten pictorial space in Central Europe. Klimt is using color and decoration to do something similar. The Nobbies have been playing with the idea themselves. How much did those early modernist experiments inform Monet in these years? You know, honestly, I think I have to say not much. Mm, That was kind of what I thought you were going to (laughs) say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and it's not just, it's not because it would reflect badly on Monet if he did take something from any of those things. But I don't think he was, he certainly had no idea of Klimt. He knew some of the Nobbies early, early on and did have interactions with them, but that really mostly comes way after they have done the stuff that you would think would be, mattering for the beginnings of Monet as a kind of decorative painter. And when he came to know Bonar, they were really good friends. But that's really after Bonar buys a house across the river from him, and they become frequent visitors to each other. And so I think, I I would also argue, and it's just a, a matter of age versus youth, that Bonar took away more from their encounters than Monet did because so much of what Monet does is just an acceleration or an expansion or an intensification of a pathway or a a set of ideas that he had proposed early on in his life and which have been preoccupying him for the last 40 years, if you will, by the time we get to 1905. And, and so I think that I think we're seeing him also in increasing retreat from the, the action, really, of, of what's going on in Paris or any place else in Europe, and where he really is focusing on a world that he has created for himself as a a sort of farm of motifs, if you will. There's a great snapshot in the catalog from 1926, so, you know, 20 years on from the period we're talking about now, of Monet and Bonnard in uh, in Monet's garden. It's it's a <laughs> it's a fun candid. And it's really and that's the last year of Monet's life also. You know, so Bonnard, if you can imagine, in that year buys his first residence in the south of France at Le Canet. And in fact, a couple of years later, and I would say inspired by the by the kind of dimensions and scale of a Monet painting, 
he paints this fantastic landscape that Kimball Art Museum just bought last fall, which is this kind of dreamy worldview of the view around his house. And so that's where he's headed at the same time that he's been seeing in Monet's studio over the past decade, the big, horizontal, very wide, expansive views of, uh, of Monet's pond. So I think, that, I think that there's a very fruitful uh, interaction between the two of them, at that, even at that very late moment in Monet's art. So to move on beyond this group of paintings that Monet makes kind of between 04 and 08, paintings looking down at the water that eliminate the horizon line, it's probably necessary to touch on a bit of a biography. Monet is struck by several family tragedies. What were they and how did they impact not, not really his painting, but kind of his ability to or his, even his interest in painting over the next few years? Well, you know, Monet really is a family man. By this time in his life, has not only his two sons, the sons of his first wife, Camille Dancieux, and they are Jean and Michel, but he also has the wife, or, or rather the companion, that he has lived with pretty much since the death of Camille, whose name is Alice Oshede. And the Oshedes were early collectors of Monet's work, and Ernest and Alice sort of separate. They don't divorce, but they separate, and Monet and Alice form a couple, and with her come all of her children. So there is suddenly this household of kids who are between the ages of one or two and 10 or 11 or or their early teens, let's say. And Monet grows, those kids grow up with Monet fundamentally as their father. And so when they move to Giverny in 1883, and then when he succeeds in buying the property in the early 90s, and then when he enlarges the property in the 19, excuse me, the 1890s, it's all as a kind of fantastic family compound. Just before 1910, Alice is diagnosed with a heart disease, which eventually kills her in 1911. And so here is Monet, who is at this point 70 years old and is widowed. And the period leading up to her death is very, very tense. And she dies, and he's kind of thrown into a deep state of mourning. He comes out of it to finish a group of paintings that he had executed in a kind of holiday in in Venice in 1908, has an exhibition of them, and fast on the heels of that, his son Jean begins to get worse and worse in terms of health. And so Jean is an invalid in Monet's house, installed in the room that had previously served Monet as a kind of a a salon or a a living room hung with paintings from his his history as an artist with a lot of family connections being, being displayed on those walls. And there's Jean in the living room of his house where he has to come through every day and he's watching his son die. And so Jean dies in the spring of 1914. 
Monet had just begun to paint a few things in 1913 after sort of coming out of his mourning for Alice. And then Jean dies in the spring of 14. And contrary to the sort of work stoppage that he experienced after Alice's death, a few months after Jean's death, he experiences this inspiration, a kind of like out of the blue, mad energy to paint again. And he acquires a huge number of canvases of a much larger size than he's used to, and we're off. But but it's fascinating that he's coming into this period of really dynamic intensity, following on a period of domestic tragedy for him, for him, the death of his wife and of his firstborn child. And then out of it, he springs into this new period of of real energy. And it's like somebody shook him and woke him up, uh, but he was doing it himself. You argue in the catalog, I think, that about now, in in, in mid to late 1914, that Monet rediscovers some paintings from 1897, presumably in his studio or somewhere near it anyway. What did he rediscover and what impact did they have on him? Well, you know, the, the story is that he rediscovers them. And I don't really contradict that. But on the one hand, it makes me wonder, how can you have this clump of paintings and forget about them? Let's put it this way. When he made them in the 1890s, in the second half of the 1890s, he kind of knew what he was doing. He was expanding scale. The the scale of the water lilies to the overall size of the canvas was relatively large. He retreats from that almost literally in terms of pulling back from the motif so that everything becomes smaller between 1904 and 1908. And then in 1914, he starts where he left off in 1897 with bigger canvases and with bigger motif, the, the motif treated more largely than he had done before. And so there is this real exploration of a vision that he had had but had had not pursued, but with an with a, really an entirely new technique. The difference between a painting of 1907 and 1914 is phenomenal. The 1914 painting will literally be twice as wide and twice as tall as the 1907 painting, but it will show exactly the same number of of waterly pads and the same disposition of them, let's say. So as a consequence, everything gets bigger. The literally his brushes get bigger. So he's starting, you know, to buy brushes that are instead of being a quarter inch wide with maybe even a slightly pointed end or tip of the, of the, of the brush bristles, he's got a three quarters or, you know, sometimes even an, an inch and a quarter wide brush, often with a flat sort of tip, which gives him these quite large strokes and the ability, a bit like when you're writing with a, a flat nibbed pen, to go from wide to very thin, really quite suddenly. The shape of his brush strokes is even a bit more fluid, more 
calligraphic, shall we say, than he ever had been in uh, in the 19 aughts. Let's and so by the teens, he's just he's he's taking off. And when you see them in the exhibition, and when you see the the variation of stroke, the variation of thickness, the juxtaposition of ground, if you will, like maybe the sort of underlying water tone, and then the 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 tones and the shapes and the outlining of things that are appearing on top of the water. There's there's a kind of frenetic quality to it. And indeed he writes to his friends describing how busy he is, how much he's enjoying himself, how will they excuse him? He's far too busy painting to come give them a visit. And it's like he's he suddenly discovered himself again. I think that outlining you mentioned is one of the most immediately striking elements of these paintings from the teens. The Fine Arts Museum's painting or the Portland painting, Portland, Oregon painting, are both good examples. He's kind of using these outlines, which aren't in, in, in the paintings from the aughts, to kind of suggest the way the lilies move on top of the water. Absolutely. And combined with those sort of circular, let's say you're outlining a pancake motions, he often uses an exaggerated vertical stroke that might be quite long, and he sometimes then goes back and interrupts it or breaks it. But that reference to the, not shown immediately in the painting, the swaying, moving branches of a weeping willow tree, that then gives you another another dimension so that he's really exaggerating the vertical movement and the horizontal movement, which is usually made up of groupings of oval things or round things that are kind of gathered together in little islands against the the more striated, sometimes quite ragged vertical strokes that that are the reflection of what is even beyond the other bank of the pond. All of this kind of implied because you might at first not recognize exactly what you're looking at. Once you do, interestingly enough, know, once you've cracked Monet's codes for these juxtapositions of dark and light vertical strokes are all about the, the lily branch and the shadow behind it or the shadow between it and another branch, once you begin to recognize that, then you marvel at how he is balancing the water and its surface, or rather the the depth of the world into space, the flat receding plane of the water, which he tries to tip up as much as possible. But he does, in fact, decrease the size of every lily pad as you go from bottom of the canvas into the distance so you know you're looking at something in perspective but at the same time it seems to be this wonderfully the verticality gives you this kind of wonderful flat feeling of something that is always at the same distance from you and so it's a it's a it's a tour de force of of spatial organization that i don't think anybody had ever done quite so imaginatively before him we're talking about 14 and 15, and, and so there are two very different 
big things going on in, in 14 or 15. The second one, which we'll come back to in a moment, is that Monet builds a new studio and, and why. But before we get to that, I want to talk about World War One. Does the beginning of the war have an impact on Monet and his work? Well, it has an impact on the family because both one of his sons-in-law and his son, Michel, his younger son, are drafted and go to the army. So there is an immediate level of worry that is there from the end of 14, you know, from the, the, the end of the first six months of his reawakening, whammo in August, you know, war is declared and starts getting moving and troops start getting assembled for the, you know, truly worthless slaughter that takes place you know, on the western edge of France on the uh, on the the in Belgium and in in the sort of northeastern provinces of of departments of, of France where war goes on basically there from you know the end of 14 until the end of 18 and it's just the same churning battle all effectively all the time the sound of which as the germans in fact get closer and closer to paris when the french forces kind of break down and can't really uh, hold them back the sounds of the guns that are shelling paris which is 40 miles away can be heard in the garden at Giverny. Monet is also concerned about the safety of not only his friends who live in Paris, but also a large number of his earlier works that are on the premises and, or, or in the storerooms of his dealer, Durand Well. And, you know, when a bomb falls a half a block away from Durand Well, he's very concerned that it might have been might just as easily have fallen onto his artistic legacy. And, you know, he's a little bit concerned for his reputation and he's a bit vain. And and so the safety of his works actually may be his prime concern over that of, of anybody he knew. So the ongoing conflict, both in terms of the national worry or the national concern, the national anguish, and then his rather more personal feelings, makes the period from 14 to 18 a pretty tough time. And he has nonetheless managed to get himself connected enough to get the the supplies that he needs for the maintenance of his luxury lifestyle. Namely, they, they, they convince they convinced Monet that he should go to Amiens or, or, and more importantly to Reims and to paint a series of cathedrals that are, that have been destroyed. So to go to the Western front and paint cathedrals as he had painted 10 years earlier at Rouen, to paint cathedrals that were, in fact, victims of war. Ultimately, the, the commission never happened because I think to paint a ruin would be sort of antithetical to, you know, to Monet's, 
I mean, perhaps a bit too dramatic and sentimental than Monet would have liked to be. But he did use the occasion to make sure that he could get coal for his studio, where he was painting things that had nothing to do with the war, ostensibly. Coal, gasoline for his car. He was also extremely concerned about his cigarette supply. And so he manages, really, to live the war without some of the privations of his fellow residents of Giverny because he's a VIP. And the ability to build and heat this vast studio, you know, it's as big as a baseball court, let's a basketball court, let's say. And to, to be able to maintain this studio with very high ceilings and to keep it warm at all uh, in the wintertime was really a, a, a matter of really strategic negotiation and planning on his part. Let me let me set that up just a little bit. So at the time Monet is building the new studio, he's about 73 years old, which is a heck of an age to decide you need to pause and build a new studio and then and then jump back in. And of course, he's doing it, as you mentioned, during during the war. Why does he decide he needs a new and particularly larger studio? And what does it let him do in terms of the work? The impetus for needing a bigger studio really started when in 1914, and then perhaps even more in 1915, he begins to paint paintings or want to paint paintings that are bigger than the the studio that he already has. First, he paints in a studio in the house. Then he builds a separate studio apart, but it's too big and also the studio is inconveniently located on the first floor up. And he needs a studio where paintings can go in and out, where they can be tall, you know, six feet or more, and where the things that he paints in the garden can be lugged back and forth from studio to garden. And then eventually in the studio, he begins to paint paintings that are not just two meters or six feet six high, but he makes them much wider than two meters. Two meters is, the, is in fact the, the measurement of most of the paintings that, then made, that are made in the garden, but transferred to the studio and then enlarged into panels that measure as much as four meters, and four meters and a quarter, or basically 14 feet wide. Now, those things were never going to be taken back and forth to the garden. They're entirely painted indoors. And he would then line them up next to each other so that you got you got something, for instance, that might measure as a, a full composition. It might be 44 feet wide. And so you need a really big wall to have 44 feet of, uh, of width. Let me, let me just jump in really quickly to point out that there are some great contemporary photographs of this in the catalog and that those photographs alone are a reason for people to go out and get the catalog. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you very much. And yes, the studio allows him to think so much larger than he had ever literally physically been able to do in the past. And so he, you know, thank goodness he has enough money to be able to afford it because all of this work 
is being done without any immediate hope of profit. And in fact, in his lifetime, he only sells a handful of the paintings that he had made up to or between, let's say, 1914 and 1919. And he only sells one panel that measures anything wider than two meters. And so he he's painting all these pictures, but he's not going to sell them to anybody necessarily. And they're, they're, they're really experimental. And it's when, at the end of the war, he declares to his good friend, Clemenceau, who is the prime minister of France, he declares that he wants to give this gift of paintings to the nation, which starts small in number and becomes massive in number by the time he dies. He has previously not needed that room. And as I said, thank goodness he could afford to do it because it was only with that space that he was able to create in sufficient number the the big panels that would eventually, after his death, but with his participation in their arrangement, be opened at the Orangerie uh, in the Tuileries Garden in 1927. Before talking about Monet and these, these decorations and these paintings' relationship to the French decorative tradition, I want to cite one other picture that's in the catalog that I hope people go take a look at and, and, and order. It's a photograph of Monet in his studio holding a palette, and the palette is roughly the size of his torso. <laughs> so everything had to be supersized to, to make these paintings, including, <laughs> including the palette. Including the palette, yeah. The palette and the brushes um, are supersized. But imagine also the supersized orders of tubed paint that he had to make. The amount of of oily paint coming out of tubes no bigger than a toothpaste tube, mind you, that he would then also frequently squeeze out onto paper, absorbent paper or blotters, so to so as to make it slightly drier, the let a little bit of oil get absorbed by the paper so that the paint is not quite as unctuous and transparent, but is a little bit thicker. Again, a bit like dried up toothpaste. So you can you could put it on first in a really thick layer, and then you could put it on in a really thick and dry layer. And that was what Monet was, was searching for to get this very matte and very textural uh, surface effect. But yes, the, the, the enormity of the enterprise we keep reminding ourselves of how big everything had to be. And again, thank God Monet was by this point a wealthy man, so that because a, a poorer artist could never have afforded the materials to do all this. And so Monet's buying these giant canvases, buying all the paint, buying the, you know, brushes are the one thing you can kind of keep working with, but eventually they wear out too, and you've got to get a new set of brushes. The palette, in general, you can scrape off. But so there's some, there's a very few things in this enterprise, by the way, that are recyclable. It's really an intense exercise, and outdoes pretty much anything that that any of his peers had ever been able to, maybe also never been inclined to do. And it is entirely done by him himself. You know, this is a project with no assistance. Nobody helping him paint. 
the the only people who are helping him are carrying things around or rearranging his paints for him or sort of tending to his immediate needs as a kind of a handmaid his his stepdaughter who then had married his son Jean so he became so she was not only his stepdaughter but also his daughter-in-law was called Blanche Ochade Blanche and she was his kind of protector enabler for that the last period of, of his life why is Monet interested in the French decorative tradition at this point, and did it have anything to do with the war? I think Monet had envisioned the notion of, of decorations in the 1890s and was thinking about a, a decoration of water lilies that would sort of occupy the lower part of a wall in a, in a room. He then expanded that with the increased height of the decorations to making them be, you know, taller than he was, suddenly they became really mural in their ambition. So he's, he's painting things that you have to think of as, as going onto the wall, not as a movable thing, but as part of the, part of a three-dimensional space in which you exist and look at the works of art from from a kind of surrounding a surround sound effect in 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 paint so those traditions which are not just the glorious landscape decorated by Hubert Robert or an artist like that but also the more homely and popular idea of a panorama, literally a kind of a, a, a traveling show that where a painting of a, of a place might be stretched out in a 360-degree room, and you would be standing in the middle looking at space all around you. So those two kinds of ideas are known to him, and certainly they provided him with precedent, but I'm not sure it's that that really leads to his his notion of going big. I mean, they're certainly they certainly prove that it can be done. Let's say a panorama, even by a hack artist, proves that you can in fact paint yards and yards and yards of canvas and have them be mo you know mostly connected. But then you bring. What, what Monet brings to the enterprise is his eye. You know the you know the wonderful quote about Cezanne and Monet, where someone says to to Cezanne in a disparaging way, "Oh, that Monet, he's only an eye," and Cezanne rep replies, "Only an eye, yes, but what an eye!" And and really, it is the this is really the proof of the "what an eye" moniker because he. He brings to it an, a, a talent for observation and the transposition of observation into action and then the result of the action, the painting. It's truly magical what he's able to do. And, and I think that you don't want to ever say that there's only one, but there is really no other painter who did it and who did it in this fashion, at least within Monet's lifetime. 
you mentioned Monet's eye, so let's uh, wrap up by talking about his eyes. When do his vision problems start, and what impact, uh, if any, do they have on the paintings he makes in the very late teens and in the 20s? Well, they start, I mean, diagnostically, he starts having problems at, at the end, end of the aughts, and cataracts are observed early on. They then, as they usually do, begin to grow, and the, you know, the changes within the eyeball uh, start changing the way he sees. It's still in 1914, when he, when he begins this idea of, the, of painting large, he's seeing quite well. But by the late teens, he is certainly very concerned that he might go blind. The doctors and his friends encourage him to have a cataract operation. You know, even some of his friends have already had one, said, you know, it was no big deal. We were able to do it, etc. But Monet is terrified the, that the operation itself might render him blind. And already before he has the operation in the early 20s, he has been able to transcend the diminished eyesight that he's got by inventing a way of painting that can be accomplished successfully, even with the diminished capacity of seeing that he has. So my notion, when people say, oh, Monet's late work, it's all because he couldn't see. I say, Monet's late work, it's as brilliant as it is because he had to devise a way of overcoming his eye problems. And he does. And the work that he does in the ni late 19 teens, in our exhibition, for instance, a series of Japanese bridges, which are probably from 1918, 19, maybe 20, that are absolutely glorious. And I defy anybody to say that they're not magnificent works of art. And if they're painted by a guy who is having a lot of trouble seeing, then how much more glorious you have to consider them. And anyway, that's my ex admittedly very partisan point of view on the subject. And I think that anybody who goes to see this exhibition or even just looks at the catalog or even goes to some website and sees all these things will come away very impressed. I mean, even at the opening weekend of the show in San Francisco, it comes out of Fort Worth in the summer, but the opening weekend back in February in San Francisco, there were people who had been to a lot of Monet exhibitions in their life who said to me, I've never seen anything like this. That actually is the, is the reason for doing an exhibition like this, the reason for bringing, you know, 50 some odd paintings from, I've forgotten how many different lenders, 30 some odd different lenders and having them resonate with each other in a, in a really glorious way. And it's only by seeing them side by side rather than once every year that you get the sensation. And, and that's what a show is all about after all to experience things in the flesh that you otherwise could not see at the same time. We'll have images of everything we discussed on manpodcast.com, but I can't wait to see it myself. George Shackelford, thanks so much. Thank you. Anytime.
On Saturday, March 23rd, the hit public radio show and podcast Selected Shorts comes to the Getty Center. Enjoy an evening of memorable live performances by actors and guest introducers Darcy Carden of The Good Place, Tony Hale of Veep, Michael McKean of Better Call Saul, Elizabeth Reeser of The Haunting of Hill House, and Baron Vaughn of Grace and Frankie. Actor Jane Kaczmarek hosts. Get tickets and learn more at getty.edu slash 360. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a museum that believes in the power of dynamic experiences with art. The Pulitzer presents Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt, the first exhibition to examine specific periods in the rich history of Egypt when clashes between competing leaders, religions, and ideologies resulted in damage to and destruction of sacred and political images. Focusing on the legacies of pharaohs Hathshepsut and Akhenaten, as well as the destruction of objects in late antiquity, the exhibition will pair damaged works, from fragmented heads to altered inscriptions, with undamaged examples. With nearly 40 masterpieces on loan from the renowned collection of the Brooklyn Museum, Striking Power is on view from March 22nd through August 11th, 2019. Striking Power, Iconoclasm in Ancient Egypt is organized in collaboration with the Brooklyn Museum. For more information, please visit pulitzerarts.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Philips Collection curator Vesla Sertanovich. Her new exhibition is Zilia Sanchez, Soy Isla, I Am an Island. The exhibition surveys the work Sanchez, a Puerto Rico-based Cuban artist, has made since the 1950s. It is on view at the Philips through May 19th. The exhibition's catalog, which is now the go-to publication on Sanchez's work, was published by Yale University Press. Amazon offers it for 40 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. Vesla Sertanovich, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you so much. Zilia Sanchez has been painting since the late 1940s. Wow. Your show starts in 1954, but as you note right away in your catalog essay, or maybe in the director's foreword, the first impactful American exposure of her work didn't come until just six years ago. That's kind of amazing. I mean, Sanchez had, had shown frequently in group shows of Cuban art, including in Europe, going back to the 1950s. And she lived in New York for a time starting in 1960. So what, I mean, you know, kind of the inevitable, what took so long and then why, why did it, what happened in 2013 that, that made it happen? I'll, I'll go back to, for a moment to make a digression and say the title of the exhibition is So Isla, which means I'm an island. And it really serves, the title comes from many of her works with the same title, but also from her own positioning of herself as an islander. Literally, because she's from Cuba, she lived in Manhattan for 10 years, she's now in Puerto Rico, all islands, but also because her work has been always in isolation and proximity. So that kind of metaphor of an islander starts from the very early on and until now. And certain things are her own choices. She's an extremely private person. She always was very interested in learning about what's around her, but only choosing to uh, follow or to be part of what she felt close to, but never too closely. In that sense, she would say, come to me, but go away. At the same time, this is how she approaches people around her. This is how she thinks of her work. So there is that mentality. There is that something that is deeply ingrained in her personality and who she is 
as an individual, but also as an artist. Then, most of her life at this point, she lived in Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is an island that we don't pay so much attention on until we get to the hurricanes, um, unfortunately. There's so many brilliant artists in the whole different practice um, that is very community-oriented in Puerto Rico, which I learned a lot by doing the project. So there is that. We don't pay. We're very centric in terms of art, and we pay attention to what's going on in, in New York or in maybe now L.A., uh, London, Paris, and the main centers. But what's happening off beaten path somehow gets overlooked. And I think that's one other reason why, why now and not you know before. And then there is very practical reason. Her work, especially recent work, or actually from 70s onwards that we refer to as shaped canvases or reliefs, are so humongous and so hard to ship and pack. So Sanchez, as I mentioned a moment ago, lived in New York for a time starting in, in 1960. So she's there just as minimalism is getting started. I guess, I don't know, I, in, in my own mind, I, I think of kind of 62, 63 as, as being the beginning of New York minimalism. Of course, in L.A., it starts a little bit earlier with Larry Bell in 59. What what did Sanchez take from New York, and how did, especially from minimalism, and how did she adapt it to her purposes? Well, again, I'll go back to the Islander metaphor. Yes and no. She really, she's in New York. She comes in December of 1960, comes from Havana via Miami, settles in on the west side, never really adjust to New York completely. She spends there 10 years off and on. She would travel to Europe and come back. Never really learned English properly. English was not her way of communicating, you know, like the poetry that Spanish had. And New York was tough and very macho for her. She worked odd jobs. She needed to survive. It wasn't easy. And so the memories of New York are harsh. She doesn't talk with much affection about New York. When I talk to her and ask her, well, did you know so-and-so? Have you met people? She said, well, I had to support myself. I would, you know, read about it. And, you know, she was very aware of what's going on. But she never really met people. She knew Carmen Herrera. She didn't think of her highly. But Carmen was doing different kind of work. So they were on a different page. It was too cold for her. She was totally aware of minimalism, never really was keen of jazz work. He was another, again, macho man, very cold, very precise, very not sensuous enough for her, which is what her work is about. I think that's the key word, sensuality, is what minimalism, in her opinion, was lacking. However, her forms are very reductive, very simple, very geometric, but endowed with this kind of organic quality that is differentiating her from minimalism. What she, or who she felt close to, she would say, is Eva Hesse, which I don't think it comes as a surprise because of this very uh, tactile and feminine quality, which she was looking for. Also, there is a certain color, although muted color in her, in Zelia's work, but still, that gives her a sense of a human flesh, body, which her works directly refers to, and again, if not sexuality, sensuality. And then, you know, being Latina uh, in New York in the 60s, also being a fluid gender orientation, not speaking English, all of these factors, and being somewhere politically not affiliated with the left wing, but 
having aspirations or views that are aligned with left, but not too left, not too right, kind of in this limbo position certainly did not make her life in New York easy by any means. But she continues to show. She produces the work as, as much as she works aside in, you know, graphic design. Very important. She illustrated a lot of books of her friends and poets. Her circle of friends are intellectuals and poets, not so much visual artists. That's another interesting thing. She's involved in theater. She does set designs, which informs her work that is very space-oriented and architectural. Again, she does covers of the books by her friends' poets. So she's very involved in the circles of uh, Cubans and Puerto Ricans primarily, or Latin American artists in, on a broader level. And that's familiar Yet she goes and sees what's around, and she likes Louise Nevelson. She speaks of her. I often think of her in terms of Bontecue because I see the similarity in, in sensibility. That's, that's really her, her life in New York. And then once when the opportunity comes that um, she moves to Puerto Rico, it's, it's close to her beloved Cuba. She remains to be Cuban 100%. The, the atmosphere, the language, everything, the horizon line, the sunshine is something that speaks for her. So she stays. She was offered to do a commission in San Juan. Let me jump in there and set that up. So you mentioned that Sanchez was in New York for about 10 years. She receives a commission in about 1971 to make a work titled Mural and Cement in, in Puerto Rico. What is that work? Um, how did it come to happen? And how did it lead her out of New York and, and back into the Caribbean? Well, um, an acquaintance who was Cuban architect and developer who settled in San Juan, and this is Laguna Beach uh, that is outside of San Juan, basically like a suburbs of San Juan. It's a complex of, uh, we would call it condos, architectural complex of buildings, apartments, mostly for Cubans who left Cuba. So this developer who was Cuban, uh, an architect who knew really approached her and asked if she would consider doing the mural for an exchange of free rent for a couple of years. And so that's what made her switch gears and move to San Juan. She would come before she would visit Puerto Rico, obviously. She knew a lot of people there. She had a major exhibition, one of the most important exhibitions in 1970 at the university, curated by Severo Sardui. So she would go back and forth to, to San Juan, but this opportunity allowed her to settle in and stay on. And then she started to teach, and she continued to teach for more than 30 years. Yeah, it reflects the form that would kind of become her, her, her trademark. It, it, it's obviously not canvas, but her trademark objects, paintings, are canvas stretched not to the rectangle or square, but over wooden armatures that create something that's both painting and wall-mounted sculpture. Not, not quite relief, but kind of relief-ish. Exactly, in between. Something in between, a hybrid of some sort. That you know, it's hard to pin down. You know, we refer to it as it's either stretched canvas or shaped canvas. You know, shaped canvas is vocabulary that belongs to the minimalist artist, and so that's another layer for connection to minimalism. So, how did she come to that form? How did she come to to begin to do that? Good question. I so nobody knows exactly. We cannot pin down it. There is a date. There is a moment. But she tells the story of uh, first experiments 
in the 50s, in the early 50s, in the mid-50s, and she recalls the memory when her father passed away in Cuba, in Havana, and she was outside and she he died in his home bed, and those sheets were outside on the balcony, kind of, you know, blowing in the wind, and that form sticked with her, this movement of a sheet in space. And she started to explore, obviously she was a painter before, but wanted to push the painting into the space. That was always an interest of hers. And then she started to experiment with ceramics or any found object that had rounded surface to kind of push them out into space and to be evocative of body parts. But she started that and tried to show that didn't go anywhere because it was neither painting nor sculpture. It was this, again, undefined object. So she left that aside and started to do different things. And really in the 60s, even in New York, she's doing so many different things. There is one room in the exhibition where in the 60s when she's in New York, she does drawings. She's trying to experiment with the shaped canvas. She's doing informal works that are, you know, tapier-like, that she sees a lot and loves when she goes to Europe. She's looking for herself. And I think it was only later on when this friend of hers, a poet and also an artist, Severo Sardou, who I mentioned earlier, who lived in Paris, comes to her and starts calling those erotic topologies or topologia erotica, kind of contributing this very specific erotic component to her work that she didn't see. And she said to him, well, I thought these are mountains, and you, Severo, are telling me these are boobs. And that's kind of an anecdote that goes. And then she started to really, I think, feel comfortable with that shaped form that has, you know, clearly a eroticized element to it and was not afraid of that. It just was a good timing and support that she gotten. And from then on, she really, I think, liberating herself, found herself completely, and that became more or less a signature style. You mentioned that it's not clear when kind of the thing happens. There, there are two, <laughs> two details in the catalog that I think make that really clear. The first shaped canvas in the show has about as unusual a dating as you'll ever see on an artwork. It's dated 1956 to 99. <laughs> And there's also a 60, yeah, there's also a 62 to 90. <laughs> yep, that's Celia. So don't, you know, people have asked me that. I said, you know, if you're going to try to find a straightforward answer, don't, because you will not. Uh, and that's her. She likes to, uh, she's a joker, I have to say, too. There is this enigma that she intentionally pursues. But something also about her process, she, she reworks her stuff and she redates her stuff. And the same goes with the orientation of her work. So it's very intentional because the, the point is, to, to make it simple, is there is no one way of looking at my art. There is no one dating system. Nothing is straightforward. Nothing is linear. Nothing is completely clear. There is this intentional ambiguity in everything. So when you see the date, 50-something, 90-something, like way. But it says again that she started to think about something and then she would leave it and come back to it. When I met her first, there was one painting that she's still working and reworking and she's still not happy with it. And every time I would visit her, I would see that painting and she's like, I still don't like it. So it's probably going to be dated like, you know, 80 something, whatever, 2000 something. It's 
just the way she works, the way she thinks. It is clear in going through the body of work that, you know, by the mid-60s, the shaping of canvas comes in and it comes in for good. And and those forms and shapes and, and the paint, if you will, are immediately referencing uh, the female body. So is is the adaptation of the new form of the object and the subject inseparable as Sa- uh, Sanchez is moving into her mature work? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was always there in different forms. But I think we're earlier, I would say, like, let's say if we go 40s or 50s, even like early 60s, when she's, as I said, looking for herself, exploring different um, possibilities of paint, the body is not so much there. But abstraction was always there from the very beginning. She was leaning towards abstract language. He, she hated representation, although she liked surrealism, loves Lam, uh, loves Mata and Spaniards. There is this, again, sensuality and of Cuba that she wanted to convey. And in Cuba, or Cuban modernism, two things always go together, and that is the landscape and the body. They collide. So that's part of her work and vocabulary from the very first works. It just maybe was reshaped or refocused from the landscape to the body. But the two continue to collide because she thinks in of the body in more cosmic terms. Terms. That's why we have a lot of Luna or the moon images, because the moon is the symbol of femininity, symbol of reflection, introspection, and something that is associated with the female cycle and, again, femininity. And that's very precious to her. Yeah, going back to the Diana myth, of course. And, of course, Diana's symbol is, is the crescent moon. And there is that. And then there is more mythology in her work that she's, you know, for her are going back to classicism, that she is, you know, was trained with and formed by, appreciates a lot. And this classicism of form, the harmony, the symmetry, the proportions, the body is the most proportional thing that exists. So that is taken on or carried out throughout her work. The work that might make that relationship between the moon and the female form and female bodies clearest is uh, Lunar 5, Moon 5, from 1973. What What is that work and how does it join those two ideas? Well, there is that, but there are also other Lunar 5. There are some smaller uh, moon images. One thing I should just preface and say differences in, in Spanish and English. Lunar in Spanish is the moon, but also refers to the birthmark, which I think again supports what I just said, that this collision of or unification of the body with the broader landscape or the cosmic you know, the elements such as the moon. So something that is the symbol of beauty. And I think all the um, lunar images refer to both femininity with um, with different shapes, with different angles, with different openings that can allude very specifically to human body, but also go beyond that. Because after all, the body is part of the cosmic universe. It's We're part of something much bigger than us. And I think all of the images with lunar motifs have that. And then some, on top of that, have these tattoo drawings or inscriptions that, that why she calls them tattoos because they function like tattoos on the skin. So that's another element of the bodily quality of her work, the skin 
the tattoos on the skin, yet the images and shapes of the moon. So it's it's a cyclic nature of life. In other words, whether it's a human life or organic life, it's one for her or the two in one. There are two kind of painterly moves, if you will, that recur in Sanchez's work that I want to ask about. One of them is, uh, you know, comes in a little later, maybe maybe in the mid 70s and, and sticks around for a long time, for decades. And that is making works out of two separate but joined canvases, you know, so single works out of two separate but joined canvases. Is she playing with the diptych idea or is, is there something else going on here? It's, multi- it's multiple, the idea of the multiple, and she calls it modulus infinito, the idea of the infinite. And it's not just the two, actually, there are two or three or five or seven or nine panels. We'll get to some examples of those in a minute. And I, like Amazonas, uh, for instance, are beautiful examples. Anata Troianas from 1968, the black and white work that is a promise gift to Walker, which is, you know, again, doesn't have a single orientation. The point of that piece is that it's a unit of parts and function holistically. It can be reassembled. There is no one way of looking at it. Again, no upside down, no sideways. It can be reassembled, and that's the idea, which, again, ties to the minimalist idea of uh, multiple and the modular configurations, which is very, and geometry, basic geometry and balance and elegance and harmony that she's after. You mentioned the 1968 painting Promise to the Walker. The the translated title is Trojan Women. There are a number of works in the show made up of, you know, four, five, six stretched canvases made into a single object uh, with that title. Why Trojan Women? What about Trojan Women interested Sanchez? The hearings. And they're tragic and, and um, heroic at the same time. Well, we have Amazonas, we have Troianas, we have Antigone also. We have one painting by Antigone, but she did a lot of work with Antigone. Antigone specifically has a very important meaning in Puerto Rico in the 70s. It has a politi- political connotation representing uh, a symbol of repression and you know, was often used in theater and in poetry and in, in, in writing as, as a symbol of reaction to the suppression or oppression. So it was very, very important, almost a symbol of pro-independence uh, in, in Puerto Rico that she was aligned and very sympathetic to Zelia. And then all the other characters from the Greek mythology, again, going back to classicism and what they represent in contemporary life, they're all this strong woman they have power, they're tragic, they sacrifice her lives for um, well-being of others, and in that sense, they're heroines, and that's how she sees women as both tragic and heroic, but she liked to emphasize this enduring quality of, um, and heroic quality of women today and in all times. So using the historic material and applying it today, something that connecting herself again with the mythology and classic values is something that has been always an interest of her and validating women's position in society. And that is the way for her to be implicitly political, indirectly political, declaring her views strongly, but softly at the same time or indirectly, elusively. And finally, how did Sanchez and her studio uh, weather or, or survive Hurricane Maria? Tough. It was tough. The studio was pretty much grounded, but it has been rebuilt. It was all built of um, wood 
and pretty much, you know, flattened. And now it's rebuilt at the same spot, exactly looks the same, but it's in cement. And because she didn't want to leave it, she settled there at the beginning, and she was very attached to it. It's very small. When I saw it first time, it was all this dark green. It was odd. Now it's all crisp and white uh, with new windows. She's happy there, but um, it took more than a year for the studio to be rebuilt. And meanwhile, you know, her apartment where she lived, and it was on the shore on the overlooking the ocean, was also like the windows were blown out. So she was taken by a friend of hers and collector to their place and they took care of her. You know, she came back and a lot of things we have actually in the exhibition. We have some older works that were in the studios that were damaged by water, of course, that we are you know, showing in one of the galleries with other ephemera work that are really lovely drawing, but never really kept never really kept properly like you know in in the galleries or in in collector's home no archival materials so but also there are documentations of how she lived how she worked so we have that in one part of the show which i think also is very telling of her early attempts to to draw that are wonderful so that's part of the exhibition and now she's back in the studio she's working full speed. She was studying conservation in Madrid, and so she likes to restore her own works. Nobody can do that better than her. So she's reworking some of the works that have been damaged. Um, and the last time I visited her, what was it, in uh, October, this uh, last year, actually, so six months ago or something like that. If my math is right, she's 93. Yeah, in July she'll be 93. And she sings, I have to say that. <laughs> she loves to sing. Her brother was a violinist in Cuban orchestra. Um, she likes to sing opera, loves classical music. If you haven't had a chance, I think the link is on our website. See the film. We made a documentary that is 13 minutes long where you will see her and her, hear her speak. And I think everything I haven't said, she says beautifully. And I think it's, I'm so happy that we were able to commission a filmmaker to 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 do this last year. So we have her for 13 minutes. We'll have a link to that video from the show page on manpodcast.com. Vesla Sertanovich, thanks so much. Thank you. My pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.